0: Thank you, Dan. Good morning, Encounter Church. We're glad to have you here with us this morning. My name's Michael. I help uh, pastor the church here. I invite you to grab one of the Bibles uh, that you might find in the chair rack in front of you. By the way, are you enjoying those nice comfy chairs, right, so far? Nice, isn't it? Right? We'll get them broken in here uh, in a few months, but uh, we're glad to be able to have them and uh, enjoy them. But turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth. You'll find the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, toward the beginning of the Old Testament, as you look up here at this Bible on, on the pulpit here, you'll see that there's not a whole lot of Old Testament in front of Ruth. Uh, but if you hit... Uh, a book by like Joshua judges, and then you 'll find the book of Ruth uh, Ruth Chapter one is where we find ourselves and uh, we will have a testimony here this morning. Sorry about that confusion that 's completely my fault and uh we'll we'll be getting to it uh, here in a bit. I actually worked it into the sermon, and so it will be part of the illustrations at point two, so you can wait for that um, but we're glad to be able to worship here this morning. Uh, We find ourselves here in the book of Ruth, and we're going to be going through the book of Ruth. Uh, Lord willing, I anticipate it will probably take us at least until Easter, Resurrection Sunday, uh, to get through this, and uh, we'll see what God has here for us this morning. Uh, But if you would, hopefully you're there. Uh, Ruth uh, chapter 1, and it is on page 374, if you're using one of the chair Bibles there. And you see it there. Follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 1. In the, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. And the man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Melon and Killian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Well, this past Monday, uh, the twins and I were, I was driving, the twins were riding, and uh, we were uh, riding in a big blue truck, a big uh, pickup truck, and we were driving down to Rineyville, Kentucky. I'd never been there before. It was a first for me. And uh, it's just past Elizabethtown, in case you want to go for a Sunday afternoon drive, uh, just off 65. And we were driving down there in this blue, big blue pickup truck to pick up a large round bale of hay for our animals. And after exiting I-65 South, turning onto a country road, I was surprised to see a large road-closed sign blocking the roadway. Now, I was unsure of what to do, because, uh, here we go again, I'm trusting in the GPS and the GPS is telling me go down that road and yet here's this big sign that says road closed. So what did I do? Well, I proceeded to drive around the blockade sign, driving with confidence as I assumed the role of a lo- uh, as a member of the local traffic only crowd. I figured I could just get by with that. I'm um, local traffic someplace. And so we continued driving uh, down this country road, occasionally, ha- occasionally having to go around another barricade or two. Now, if you are young drivers, do not do as I say. I hear okay. After a half mile or so, we eventually found ourselves at the end of the road. This time, right, have you ever done this? You're like, oh, certainly, like this, I mean, I I got this. And this time, the barricades were indeed serving their purpose. It was clear that this road was no longer passable. Road closed. So I kind of turned to the twins. What do we do here? However, another road had been built somewhat parallel to the now dead end road. And I am hesitate telling you this because it was my dad's truck I was driving and here, I just made eye contact with him. Right? He's like, never again. <laughs> However, another road had been built parallel to the now dead end road that we were there on, And so I kind of looked at, and of course, Merritt and Anders, you know, they're loving this, right? And so with just a short bit of off-roading, because we have a high clearance on the truck, with a short bit of off-roading, we were able to leave the dead end, and we were able to be right on our way on a new path that I hadn't anticipated. This morning, we're beginning a teaching series uh, through the book of Ruth, And through this series, we're going to learn that God restores those who look to him with hope. Though tragedy certainly marks the beginning of this verse, as we just read there in verses 1 through 5, though tragedy marks the beginning of the story, God's love and sovereign plan, often a plan that maybe we had never anticipated his love and his sovereign plan, they are going to weave together a beautiful tapestry of ordinary lives and redemptive purposes. Through our study, we're going to see that our day-to-day lives are part of a bigger, hope-filled story. And it's a story of redemption. I think probably many of us have experienced dead ends, haven't we? Not just in driving, but in life. Dead ends can be those seasons of life where we feel as if we have nowhere to turn. We're completely off course. Maybe we're completely out of options. And we look around and there's not a parallel road running beside us that we can just hop right onto. It's, it's a dead end. And it's often at these dead ends when we start asking questions like how did I get here? Or we say, would I be better if I had chosen differently back there? Sometimes in the dead ends, we ask the question, why has God left me stranded here all by myself? Sometimes maybe you've asked this question and you wonder, am I at a point of no return? Is this dead end all that is left for me? Or maybe you've even asked this question, have I strayed so far that God can no longer use me? Have you ever had these questions run through your mind? Maybe even today, maybe even as I rehearse some of those questions, maybe those questions are a bit even familiar. Maybe they are even timely right now for you. Possibly the hardest dead ends to face are those which we realize are the ones that have been brought about by our own decisions. Whether they were good decisions or bad decisions, the many decisions along the way each bear some sort of consequence, whether it's good or bad. Every decision matters, right? The roads we choose to travel down, the roads we choose to avoid, all of them lead us to somewhere in life. And maybe that somewhere in life is now marked by a road-closed sign, a dead end. And possibly the most discouraging reality of any dead end is that we've convinced ourselves that this dead dead end is outside the city limits of God's sovereign plan. Not a chance. God is in control of this and that the jurisdiction of God's rule and reign no longer is capable of reaching me. I've gone too far. My wayward travels have taken me too far off course. Well, there's hope here. The big idea for today's sermon is that there is still hope at the dead end. Is that there is still hope at the dead end and we now, we, we look here, we turn to Ruth, and we see that the book of Ruth begins with uh, two descriptions that really are going to help establish the context of what these first verses describe for us. And as we get to the end, as we get to verse 5, what is going to be a dead end for Naomi. They describes for us a tragedy, a tragedy that was brought about by Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, the, the father of the two sons, by his decisions of where to go and of trying to avoid what God maybe was doing. And so we see here, go ahead, look there, and again, I, I encourage you, have a copy of God's word open. Okay, it's good. Take notes with it. Sh- scribble there in your copy and, and just follow along. And we see here, there's two important descriptions that the author of this wonderful book, Lays the context out and we see it. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. We see that this description is both historical and it's also theological. It describes it historically, it describes it theologically. And frankly, it it is a phrase that is pregnant with meaning. Being far removed from Ruth's day, we really don't understand the significance of this one-line description. So let me try to unpack it for us a little bit here this morning. Historically speaking, it says when the days, right? It says in the days when the judges ruled. The days when the judges ruled provides us with some specific historical dates. The approximate dates of the period of judges was. 1381 to 1051 B.C., and again, give, give or take a few years on both ends. It was a span of about of a, around anywhere from 330 to 350 years. Okay, so, so when you think about in the days uh, when the judges ruled, that was a, it was a long span of time, potentially up to 350 years. In fact, the period of judges accounted for nearly 25% of Israel's history in the Old Testament, was made up, almost 25% of the history recorded there in the Old Testament is made up by this time of the judges. Now you might remember the time of the judges began after Joshua's conquest of the promised land, and then it continued until the establishment of the monarchy under King Saul, so so even it's like even just take your copy of God's word like if you if you just turn one book to the left you'll see you'll hit the book of what judges then if you turn another book to the left you'll hit the book of Joshua so Joshua again describing the conquest of the promised land that God had promised to them and then we get into that period of judges so we have the book of Ruth here happened it's it's like a uh, it's like a, a a view into uh a, a, a family that was living during that book of Judges, all right? That time period of Judges. Now, often we think of a judge as one who sits in the courtroom and wraps the gavel on a bench and making a case decision, right? Many of us right now are thinking of the old episodes of Judge Judy. Thank you. Some of you are tracking with me, right? Judge Judy. That's what we're thinking of right now. But that's not, that's not the idea of a judge, the judges of Scripture are somewhat comparable to military and civil leaders who ruled when the nation of Israel reflected. Uh, more of a loose confederacy and so you would have judges or you would have governing officials around the region and you would have some, one that might be governing over here while another judge is governing over here. And so through the book of Judges, there's, there's many judges who are listed and some of them are governing different regions of the land at the same time. So that gives us a little bit of a historical perspective. Again, in the days when the judges ruled, it gives us a historical timeline. But along with a historical description, we also realize that the days when the judges ruled is also a theological description. The days of the judges primarily were dark days for the people of Israel. Keep in mind, a a span of time, almost 350 years it was a time that was often overshadowed by disobedience. It was almost, a, a, at times, a roller coaster ride. Right, the Israelites they would obey God, and then they would fall into disobedience, and then they would obey Him again, and then they would fall into disobedience. And time and time again, this is what it, this is really what it was like. But we see there's a there's a helpful description overall description of the time period of Judges. And in fact, if you're there at the book of Ruth, just turn one page to the left and you'll see a summary statement of what this theological description of this time of the Judges was like there at, in verse 25. Follow along there as I read Judges chapter 21, verse 25. It says, In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did As they saw fit. In those days Israel had no king. And so everyone did as they saw fit. So theologically speaking it was a dark time. The days when the judges governed was a time that was marked by apostasy. They were apathetic toward the Lord. Um, They were often entangled with idolatry idolatry with immorality, wars often raged. And what we see is in the day when the judges ruled, a time in which every man was doing what they saw fit in their own eyes, what we see then is that the people's disobedience was always followed by God's judgment on the nation and the land. See, it's also important to note that they're living during a time in which uh, they're, they're living underneath this, this Mosaic covenant, this covenant that God had made with the people. And basically, the covenant goes like this. God says that if you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, I'll bring curses on the land. Obey me, blessing. Disobey me, curses. And you can read all about that in Deuteronomy chapter 28. We won't take time this morning to read that. But in Deuteronomy chapter 28, it starts off, the first half of Deuteronomy 28 is filled with blessings. And you're like, yes, that's what we want. And the second half of it is filled with curses. And then later in Deuteronomy chapter 30, if you take time to read it, I would encourage you to do so. That the Lord lays out the clear ends of their obedience and their disobedience. Obedience, blessing, God says you'll have life. Disobedience, curses, you'll have death. So in considering this covenant that God made with the people of Israel, there in the Old Testament, uh, right, I think even now, right, in this age in which we live, it does give me reason to pause and even think about my own patterns of obedience and disobedience and whether or not I'm considering the outcome of my own choices in life, right? And and we're going to see kind of the outcome of, of Elimelech's choices, but I think this is opportunity for us now to think about that, right? Am I living in an, in an obedient life in which, I'm persu- in which I, I am experiencing the blessing of God or am I pursuing my own ways, living like the judges, those in the days of the judges, everyone does what is right in their own eyes and am I maybe even experiencing the consequences of that, might say well come on michael that right that's old testament talk right we live in this age of grace jesus has come forgiveness is available you know i'm just going to live however i want to live and i'm just going to pull out my forgiveness card right jesus is i'm going to slap it on the table and say jesus forgive me for that do you have are you ever tempted sometimes to live in that way and yet i'm reminded there in, in hebrews where we're told that a man reaps what he sows. A man reaps what he sows and that God does discipline those who live a life of disobedience toward him. In Hebrews 12, the author says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, God's discipline produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. See, God will bring difficulty into our lives for our benefit, for our purposes. And sometimes God brings those difficulties into our lives because we have chosen to walk a pathway of disobedience. And so he's going to bring heartache and pain and hardship into our lives. Now I'm not painting with such a broad brush and saying that every hardship or heartache you are experiencing now is because of your disobedience that's not that is not what i'm saying but i will say there are times when god does do that so with that thought in mind let's return back to verse one of ruth where then we read in the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land so based upon what i've just described Are are, are the people, are the Israelites, are they living lives of obedience or lives of disobedience? Well, we can naturally say, because God has brought a famine in the land, that it is most likely that this is a time of disobedience. Now, this is not to say that famine in Scripture is always due to the disobedience of God's people. All right, we're not always given a reason for the various famines of scripture, but based on the general state of the Israelites during the period of judges, it does seem that there's a strong likelihood that the people had been rebelling, living in rebellion against God because they've failed to fulfill their end of the covenant. So now, all right, okay, so there we go. In the days when the judges ruled, and I got a few minutes left here this morning, we made it through half of the first half of the verse, right? This is, is going to be fun. Let's go ahead. Uh, Michael Fay texted me, and he, like when I said, we're going to cover five verses, he's like, man, that's going to be like a two-minute sermon. I was like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a second, brother. We'll, we'll take our time really slowly here. All right, so it says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Okay, so bad things are happening, right? People are disobeying. Right? God is bringing, God is bringing uh, uh, discipline to the people. He's trying to get their attention. So how, how, how is Elimelech going to respond? So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now this then takes us, okay, here's the first point. Okay, here's what we're going to see is Elimelech is going to start, he's going to try to take a shortcut. He's going to try to take a shortcut around what God is doing. All right. Now, just again, another quick word about famines in the days of the Old, Old Testament, recognizing that Israel was an agrarian society. They were very dependent, they didn't have grocery stores uh, on every corner. Uh, so, if, if you didn't grow it or if you didn't kill it, you probably didn't eat. So, we see that a famine was not just a threat to a person's lifestyle, but it was also a threat to life itself. In fact, famine was the most, what was a most feared catastrophe because a famine was often drawn out and excruciating, excruciating in the nature of suffering. I mean, like I get hangry after missing one meal. If you can only imagine how discouraging and how difficult a famine would be to endure that. And even as we see famines that, that take place around the world, And and the trouble and the hardship that those bring. So again, all right, there's a famine in the land. What's Elimelech going to do? We're going to see that he's going to try to take a shortcut. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, let me just go ahead and highlight a few more important details in these first couple of verses, all right? And again, you might want to take some notes. Bethlehem, the name of the city means this, house of bread. Bethlehem is located in the promised land where God, as, as Joshua is, as, is taking conquest over this land, it was going to be a place that was fl- flowing with what? With, with milk and honey, and there's going to be this city that we're going to call the house of bread. It's here in the promised land. It's a place called house of bread. It's a place that represented and should have experienced God's provision and plenty And yet now what's happening? The cupboards are bare, and there's no bread. Moab, all right, we see there that Elimelech says, I'm going to go to a country of Moab. Moab was a small kingdom on the other side of the Jordan River that that distinguished, that kind of set Israel apart. Okay, so Moab is not a part of the nation of Israel. It's a foreign country. It's a foreign territory. And the land of Moab, uh, unfortunately, did not have a shining record with the people of Israel. Its reputation with Israel was not good. This, the, the people of Moab uh, began with an incestuous relationship, and those people then grew. But it seems for some reason there's food in Moab. Isn't it always the case that the grass always seems greener on the other side of the fence, right? Right? So Moab, so we have Bethlehem, famine, God's promises, should have experienced God's promises, house of bread, Moab over there has food. Elimelech, let's think about Elimelech, his name. Consider the meaning of his name. It means this, my God is king. Oh, that sounds like a good name, doesn't it, right? My God is king. But what we're going to see is Elimelech is not living out the meaning of his name. What we're going to see is Elimelech is actually doing what he wants to do. He's taking matters into his old his own hands. And so what we're told is that Elimelech took his family to the land of Moab to live for a while, to sojourn temporarily. Okay, see there in verse one he says, Together with his wife and his two sons, he went to live for a while, that word is sojourn. That gives us the understanding that it's only going to be for a short amount of time. It's just a shortcut. How many of you have ever experienced that a shortcut actually ends up not being a shortcut? Right? Have you, a, a saying in my house is that the, the longest distance between two points is probably a shortcut. Right? We think, man, this is a lot longer than I remember it to be. Right, fear the, fear the passenger who gets in the car and as you're driving says, hey, let me show you a shortcut, right? Be careful of them. We might say that Elimelech was trying to take a shortcut around God's plans and his purposes. See, Elimelech, and you might think, but Michael, this just seems so pragmatic, right? He's, he's taking care of his family. He's, he's going to go find food. He's, he's, trying, he's, he's trying to avoid being hungry, And wouldn't we all want to do that? And and really, isn't that what a shortcut ultimately is? It's always an attempt to avoid something. But what we have to understand is that God brought the famine to the land for the people's own good. That's what Hebrews tells us about discipline. It's painful for a while, but in the end, it's for our benefit. Why a famine? Because the people had started depending on themselves. They had turned their backs to the Lord. And that's what the blessing and curses was, right? God God would allow a a, a hardship, a heartache, a curse to fall on the people in their disobedience to wake them up, to get their attention, to cause them to turn back to the Lord. But, But Elimelech, instead of Right, Instead of turning back to the Lord, he turns away from the Lord. And where does he go? To enemy territory. To a foreign land. To where the grass seems to be greener. So instead of acknowledging his need to humble himself instead of inviting other Israelites to do the same, instead of living in the land of Bethlehem, the house of bread and the promised land that's going to be flowing with milk and honey, and instead of crying out to the Lord and say, God, we have sinned. Forgive us of this. Won't you bless us? Won't you bring provision to us? He instead took matters into his own hands. He was attempting to shortcut the very means by which God intended to draw his heart back to himself. You see, any shortcut that takes us away from God and his intended purpose is a wrong choice. No matter how pragmatic, no matter how realistic it might seem to be in our own minds, in our own understanding. No matter how quick a shortcut we might believe it to be, sin is always an attempt to get us to short God, shortcut God's promises. Again, so, again, just a shortcut. Here's what he says. We're just going to go, end of verse 1, went to live for just a while, sojourned for a while. Then we continue, it says, in verse 2, it says the man's name was Elimelech, right? God is my king, but he's not living like God is his king. Instead, he's living like he's the king and he's going to take charge His wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Epiphrites from Bethlehem, the house of Judah. And they went up to Moab. And it says they lived there. There's a progression here that is taking place. I am not a Hebrew scholar, but I'm thankful for online resources that help us understand these words. The word sojourn gives us this idea of only for a, a short period of time at the end of verse 1. Now at the end of verse 2, Elimelech has, dra- has drug his whole family to Moab. And now it says, and they went to Moab and they lived there. There's a progression of time that has taken place. And, and again, right, if, if we are just going to kind of use this, uh, in, in kind of straight Hebrew language, it says, it would read in this way. It says, they went to the fields of Moab, and they were there. I I've, Kind of like, it's like, here we are. We're here. We came here just for a quick shortcut. We're only going to hang around for a little bit. But now we find ourselves, we, they are just there. It's the picture of someone who's remaining and just kind of continuing in place. It's almost as if the family has just kind of stalled out. They're now drifting through life without a lot of intention and purpose. Maybe they've lost a little bit of motivation. They've grown content. They've grown content. (laughs) They've grown content. And they're just there. The family might be saying, "Hey, we're good." Right? Everyone seems to be happy. We hadn't planned around to stick we hadn't planned on sticking around Moab for for too long, so why not? Let's just go ahead and we're going to just continue to hang out here. We come to understand that what started out as a sojourn, as a shortcut from God's purposes is now proving to be a much much longer stay. But what happens Look at verse 3. What happens is now Elimelech, in verse 3, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, he dies. No, right? And now she's left with her two sons, right? What seems to have happened at the end of verse 2 is that the family of four had just grown comfortable living in Moab. They'd left Bethlehem for the land of Moab. It was an act of compromise in Elimelech's heart. He says, okay, let's just, let's just go over here. All right, I'm going to compromise a little bit, but we won't stick around for too long. However, over time, it seems that the family started to feel more at home in the land of compromise than they felt at home in the land of God's promises. And what happens? Elimelech dies. We get this sense that God's trying to get their attention. That God's trying to say, hey, you've, you've, you've kind of you, you, you've usurped my purposes. You're here in this place that you never intended to be. And at the point of Elimelech's death, one would think that Naomi and her sons would wake up and return to Bethlehem where they should have stayed all along. Not everyone fled Bethlehem, we're going to find out here in chapter 2. People actually stayed there in Bethlehem, but Elimelech says, we're going to do it our own way. Right? And you might think, okay, now that dad has died, surely they're going to pack it up and hit the road, right? No. Probably in the son's eyes, they're they're thinking, who wants to eat a slice of humble pie and return home? You can almost hear the son saying, let's just stay where we're at. Right? We can make this work. (laughs) Even though we just lost dad, we still got each other, we're healthy, we're able-bodied, we're smart, right? We got, we got grit, we got this, we can do this. And instead of, instead it does seem, then even, all right, continue on reading, it seems like they even dig their heels a little bit deeper into compromise. What happens in verse 4? Now they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And now look, it says, after they'd lived there about 10 years, now stop right here, and I know many of you know the rest of the story, but if you are reading this for the first time, you've gotta understand, you're thinking to yourself, these guys are crazy, they are just compromising one day after another. And now, what started out as a sojourn, just a quick shortcut, there now, there, has now turned into how long? 10 years but isn't that what compromise does to us? Isn't that what compromise does to us? Just a little bit of sin. Just a little bit. And then before I know it a little bit more, I'll kind of shrug my shoulders at it a little bit more. And before you know it, you're at a place that you never intended to be And you're sticking around for a lot longer than you intended to stay. I have a testimony video from Noreen Pretty that is going to talk about compromise in her own heart. And I want you to hear kind of that progression of compromise. And I want to tell you, as a church, Noreen is bearing her heart in this video. She's she's transparent. She's sharing things that she probably didn't think that she would ever find herself, at least not for a while, find herself sharing. But I think there's value here for us as a church family to hear this. And so go ahead and watch this video.
1: It's important to know the things that may harm it. Prior to my back surgery, I had a dark period of time and I'm hurting. And I'm working every day and I am hurting. And epidurals are not working Every night I'd go home, and after I'd cook dinner and, and, and do my work and stuff, then I'd sit down at the TV with two beers. And I'd do my two beers and my Tylenol or Gabapentin, and over the course of time, it was three beers, and after that it was four beers. And then after a while, then I thought to myself, is, is beer something I want, or is beer something I feel I need for the pain? I did not want to live like that. And feeling, working, feeling pain, and then drinking to numb pain, that was not the life I was gonna have and I asked God for help. And when I say ask, it was more like how saw my be. When the Bible says, above all else, guard your heart. When looking at guarding your heart um, and taking care of yourself, God's word helps center you helps get you in a calm place, so you can hear things better. So uh, God and I came up with a plan. I was able to communicate with God and he was able to take me where I needed to go, which was to make the decision and then stand beside me that that I did not need alcohol for, for my back pain, that we would face this a different way and we have The role of the church helps me to focus um, God's role in my life, God's goodness, and and my interaction with with God. And um, it it gives me a sense of of comfort, but it is something that is also my responsibility to to look into, to to find like-minded people, to share my beliefs, and, and to feel more secure But you've got got to guard your
0: heart. So did you hear the progression? Did you hear, as Noreen, and thank you Noreen for sharing that. Did you hear how she said, "I, I turned to something else to numb the pain. And this is what we see here with Elimelech and his family. He's turning away from the Lord. Rather than walking through, rather than, I love it how Noreen says, and, and man, we made up a plan, right? But, but that's, Elimelech, they find themselves now in this, this road of compromise. And even the sons, I, I almost wonder, we should not be surprised that these sons then went and took Moabite wives. I think the saying's true, like father, like son, What pattern did they have? They had separated themselves from the land of promise. They had separated themselves from the house of bread. They had separated themselves from God's people. And they'd gone over here to where they thought the grass was greener and the food may have been plentiful. Their bellies may have been full, but their souls were empty. And they're compromising. Deeper and deeper. They're getting into it. The easy path of compromise provides us often with very little resistance. The path of compromise, if you are in Moabite territory, will even provide you encouragement from all the wrong people. And I wonder, are there areas of compromise in your life that you need to turn from? That you need to be like Noreen and you need to get down on your knees and say, God, I can't live like this any longer. I need your help. In verse 5, here's where we finally hit the dead end. It's in verse 5 where Naomi now finds herself at the dead end. It says both Melon and Kilion also died, having been there for 10 years, right? Probably over, certainly over 10 years, they had been there in, in Moab. Just a shortcut, just for a little bit. And now both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband church, I think we have to also recognize that our decisions, our compromises, our attempts at shortcuts affects other people around us. Don't believe the lie that this decision only affects you. We see Naomi is now facing the most desperate situation. What's that desperate situation? She's a widow. She's grieving the loss of her, two, of her two only sons. In fact, she's grieving the loss of her only children by birth. She's no longer able to have children. And in that day, right, if you had children, that means that, that meant that you were going to be cared for in your old age. Or hopefully so right, that they're going to care for you. And so she is in a desperate situation and she's continuing to live in a foreign land separated from any next of kin. It is no exaggeration to say that in this day for Naomi, she was hopeless. She was at a dead end. Sometimes when standing in front of a dead end or enduring the tireless heartache of hardship of life's trials, it is often very hard to see God's goodness, isn't it? Let alone even sense his presence. We, su- we struggle to see why God allows some of these dead ends to happen in our lives, right? Again, if you've never read the book of Ruth before, and, and if, if you were to stop there, you would say, man, this is kind of a drag, right? This is a tragedy, that this is starting out with, right? What, what's Naomi going to do now? But you know, there's gotta be more to it because there's still a couple chapters left in this story. It's like when you're watching the movie, at the, at the beginning of the movie, the superhero is in like a, a predicament and you think, well, he can't die now. I mean, there's still 45 minutes left in the movie. <laughs> so you think there's gotta be something going on, right? What's happening? But sometimes when you're in the thick of it, you don't see that. I guess the old saying goes that hindsight is twenty-twenty. But even at times, hindsight in this world doesn't even always give us a glimpse of what God is doing. Church, we should not be surprised if there are mysterious hardships that we face that will only be understood on the other side of eternity's shore. We cannot expect to know in full detail what God is doing. We're finite creatures, aren't we? And we cannot expect to know the ways of an infinite God. Sometimes when, we're, when we find ourselves as a dead end, yes, maybe Naomi is thinking, oh, why didn't we, do, why, why did we come here in the first place? Yes, but even still, you might be wondering, God, what are you doing? I thought you had these promises for me. Sometimes in life, we will go through life, we'll be hitting those dead ends, we'll find ourselves in, in deep heartache, great hardship, and we will never know until eternity I think maybe one of the benefits of this book of Ruth maybe for all of hopefully for all of us here is that Ruth is going to provide for us a window into the sovereign storyline of God's plans okay so we're going to read Ruth and maybe you're at a dead end right now and you might be that person who says "Uh, it's over I'm hopeless There's nothing left for me. Our study in this book of Ruth is going to say, no, but wait. It's not the end. See, through biblical narratives like the book of Ruth, we can read and start to see God's unseen hand. An unseen hand when you're going through it, but when you step back and you look at it, you can say, but wait, God was there all along. We'll be able to, through our study, learn of patterns and methods and principles by which God worked here in the life of Naomi and then in the life of Ruth also. We'll get a glimpse into some of God's mysterious ways. And what this will help us to do is help us to trust God in our situation today. And we'll say, if God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and if God did this for Ruth, if God was still working in the midst of her dead end, of Naomi's dead end, if God was still working then, then, then maybe, just maybe, God is working in my life through this today. we're going to find that there's hope still at the dead end. And in the grace of God, the dead end that you might be facing very well might turn out to be a new beginning of a long journey back home. Can I pray for us? Father, there are those, some of us sitting here today. who feel very hopeless. And God, we read Scripture and we allow the Spirit to teach us And we are reminded that you are still working. And God, I pray for each person who's here. Some of whom, Lord, need to face the reality of very, very well might even be your your loving hand of discipline that is trying to woo them back to you. To bring them back to you. And so, God, I pray that you would help us not to take shortcuts from that. God, I pray for those of us who maybe find ourselves. Uh, Indeed, having been making compromises, excuses for not living in a way that honors You, but instead living in a way that is pleasing to us instead. God, I pray, Lord, that You would Uh, remind us of the hope that you are not done with us yet and that you are working and that you very well might be doing your greatest work in our hearts even today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We participate in the Lord's table each Sunday. And it's a time to remind us that uh, Jesus did not take a shortcut. Jesus knew that um, the road was hard, that it was a road of suffering. But he was determined to do the Father's will. Jesus said, not my will be done, but your will be done. And he made no compromises. And so as we think about what's taking place in Ruth, and, and we say, but what example do I have to follow of one who was perfectly obedient one who was willing to take the discipline of God, not because of his own sin, but because of your sin. But one who was willing to walk the road of discipline for us. And who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. So that we might receive the forgiveness of our sins. And he did that in our place. And so the Lord's table reminds us. It calls